Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer. Hi, I'm senior producer Elizabeth Nakano. Today we've got something a little different for you, a bonus episode. I love this little story, but it didn't find a home in an actual episode. And so we wanted to share it anyway, because it's, it's just so classic. It's just, it's just an amazing story. So when we talked to the pioneer of modern bouldering, John Gill, he shared the story of his eye-opening trip to Colorado as a teenager. In the spring of 1954, later that summer, another friend and I got in his old car and drove out to Colorado. And he had been climbing out uh, in Colorado a little bit, too. Uh, went to Boulder and went to Holly Bar, the Holly Bar shop in some basement somewhere. And I can't remember what their story was. He may have been an engineer or something, but he and his wife opened a climbing shop in Boulder in the early 1950s. And that's where you went to get your ropes and so on. And he sold mostly army surplus stuff from the Second World War from the Mountain Division. So that was my introduction to, you know, looking at various types of equipment. I think it's important to remember that when a climber from the 50s or 60s talks about their rope, it's not the same rope that we're using now. And it's basically not guaranteed to catch a fall, which is which is sort of an important thing to keep in mind that that, uh, you know, back in the day, climbing ropes didn't actually catch you if you fell necessarily, you know, they frequently broke. And so, you know, that's a pretty significant change from from modern climbing. Uh, you know, nowadays gear is all certified in certain ways and has to meet international specifications. So anything you buy for climbing nowadays, you know, is is rated, you know, like it will work, it will catch you, you can uh, trust your life to it. And that just wasn't the case in the 50s and 60s. We picked up some equipment there and then we went out and uh, did a couple of climbs right around Boulder, went up the third flat iron and uh, got to climb the Maiden. I'd seen a picture of the Maiden before and was really impressed by it. And the rappel was something else, too. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of hiking around the mountains, uh, but I got tired of just hiking up these, sledging up these 13,000 or 14,000 footers. And my friend, he had told me that he would take me up the east face of Long's Peak. And I was really looking forward to that because that's a real mountain. It's not like these other things we were just hiking up above Timberline. And uh, came the day that he had uh, designated for that trip up Long's Peak. And the night before he said, I'm not going. And he explained that he had actually taken a fall up there the year before and broken his leg, and he just wasn't going back up. I said, fine. (laughs) What what else could I say? It was his car and everything. So I got up at 3 a.m. the next morning, put together a little bit of equipment, rappel rope, light rappel rope, I think about a 50-foot length, and my ice axe and a few pitons and carabiners and things like that, and uh, went out to the highway and uh, thumbed a ride with a milk truck. And the guy drove me up to the Long's Peak Ranger Station. And I took off, hiked all the way up to Chasm Lake. I got up to Chasm Lake, and, uh, well, I was very impressed looking at the east face of Long's Peak. I, this is a kid from Georgia who's never seen anything bigger than Stone Mountain, used to climbing small pieces of rock. So I thought, well, it's not supposed to be too hard. I'll just pick a way up there. And so I've, I looked, and uh, 
there appeared to be a route on the buttress of Mills Glacier that looked possible and didn't look too difficult. So I started up that. You know, it's like when you're standing at the lake looking up, it looks like a 2000 foot vertical wall above you. You know, there's no obvious easy scramble. So to hear John Gill talk about, you know, just scrambling up the glacier via a new route in 1950 something as a 17 year old from Georgia, I was like, this is so insane. But, you know, I think that you need the proper context to appreciate how insane it is. My only recollection of the, of the details is that at one point I was in a shallow dihedral, fairly vertical, and uh, there were no holes for another two feet, but there was a big knob sticking up uh, two feet above my outstretched arms. And so I took my rope and doubled it over and tossed it over the knob and pulled myself up. Got up to the top of the buttress and crossed the ice field and went down went over to um, Broadway and I sat down to recuperate. And uh, I looked down at the base of Mills Glacier and here's something right out of a Walt Disney movie. It's a Swiss guide coming up, wearing the knickers and fancy socks, you know, and the little hat, the beret and so on. He seemed to be coming up towards where I was. So I just waited for him and he got up there he introduced himself, I can't recall his name right this minute, but apparently my friend had awakened, I left a note for him in the pup tent, and he'd driven up to the Long Peak Ranger Station and talked to Bob Frosson, who was the climbing ranger there, and told him about me. And apparently he told him there's this kid, 17-year-old kid from, from Georgia, doesn't know beans, and he's gonna be wandering around on the east face of Long Peak. Well, Frosson immediately said, he's probably dead by now. And uh, about that time, this, this fellow showed up, the guide. He was a guide, mountain guide, uh, working out of Long's Pecan, I think. And uh, he was going to uh, trek up to the, uh, to the top of the mountain to replace the summit register. And so Frosten told him about me and I said, you better get up there and at least locate the body. Sorry, random thing. I mean, it just made me think of a story that Tommy told me, I think, uh, at you know, on Broadway ledge on the east face of, of Long's, he was telling some story about a Boy Scout troop accidentally winding up on Broadway because they basically followed the headlamps from from climbers up uh, the north chimney, like the standard approach. And and then basically the sun came up and they were like, where are we? Is this the normal trail? And they're like, oh, no. And then wound up having to get rescued because obviously they have to rappel down off off the ledge. But it's still just this crazy position where, you know, unless you're a pretty experienced climber, it's just a really uncomfortable place to be. Well, we sat there and talked a little bit and you saw I wasn't a complete idiot and I was still alive. And so we scrambled on up to the top of the top of the mountain and he replaced summit register. <laughs> but you kind of glossed over the whole scrambling to the summit of the mountain. I mean, from, from Broadway, did you guys carried on to the top? Did you go over around the keyhole route or whatever, like around the left side? Uh, I don't know. We just went, we just went up this scrambling route straight to the top. I have no Classic. idea what it was at the time. You know, at the time, the, the existing routes, I think, were Alexander's Chimney, Stettner Ledges, and maybe the Obelisk. I don't know if that had been climbed. Oh, Joe's Solo. Maybe it was Joe's Solo. I don't know. Anyhow, we just, we just scrambled up. I, didn't, I don't no recollect any, any difficulties at all. But it was a big mountain adventure. And, you know, the first time I'd ever been on something like that, it was really exciting. We started down, and when we got close to the ranger station, he said, you wait here. Don't you go in. You wait out here. And so I sat down beside the trail, and he went in and talked to Bob Frost and came out about 15 minutes said, okay. 
So let's go. And he gave me a ride then back to the campground. Apparently for Austin, it turned out, was absolutely furious. He wanted to go up if I was still alive and kick my ass all the way down the mountainside. But that didn't happen, fortunately, and it all turned out for the best. So listening to some of the stories from the older climbers who started in the 50s, 60s, and even 70s, it just sort of seems like the way you had to do it was to just dive completely into the deep end. It seems like it's a little hard in a way to do that full commitment approach today, maybe because it's gotten more athletic. What we would consider a beginner route today was cutting edge in the 1950s. Do you think people jump into the deep end like that? Well, it's not even it's not even the athleticism. I think that the the main difference in how you get into climbing now is just that in the 50s and 60s, there was so little access to information and access to equipment that you really just had to fully commit and dive in and, and just do your best and see what happened. But now it's pretty easy to to read a book, watch a video, you know, rent the equipment, buy the equipment, you know, get a tutorial, get a coach. I mean, basically, it's just so much easier to get into climbing now that nobody really has to do the full commitment, you know, crazy mountain climbing experience. They can, you know, they can go to the gym and take a two hour class and basically learn, learn all they need to know to do it safely. We'll be back next week with a feature length episode. This is Climbing Gold.